Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies His church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Okay, so we've been going through, we did um, First and Second Chronicles, then um, Ezra, Nehemiah, and now Esther. Then next week is going to be the challenge to get through Isaiah in 45 minutes. Uh, that's uh, like 1.4 chapters a minute. <laughs> so, um, so here, um, throughout history, God has raised up. This is one of the easiest ones, really. So I go from easy, because Esther is a story that a lot of us know. And, um, and so just in sheer quantity of words, um, I'm in a much easier place this week than next week. I still haven't figured out, like today I have about nine and a half pages. For Isaiah, I have over 15. So I gotta figure out how to whittle that down. I can get through eight to 10, but uh, 15's tough. Throughout history, God has used uh, different empires, different uh, heathen nations um, to um, discipline and even punish his people for the rebellion and sin. I thought I'd just uh, kind of quickly review the, the five great empires that have um, afflicted Israel during the Old Testament period and then into the New. The first would be the uh, empire was Assyria, and it, Assyria is the empire that uh, conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. So after Solomon, the kingdom splits, uh, the northern kingdom has its uh, Samaria as its capital, and um, that would be up here. And um, there, they were they were defeated by the Assyrian Empire. Shalemeser uh, conquered Israel in 722 BC. Then they were uh, overthrown by um, Babylon, uh, not Nebuchadnezzar, the predecessor of, of Nebuchadnezzar. But it was Nebuchadnezzar then who, of Babylon, who then destroyed uh, Jerusalem and uh, exiled uh, many of the people from Judah. Um, then came Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the Great from Persia, uh, who after he conquered the Medes, then subdued Babylon. And because he subdued Babylon, now uh, Israel or Israel and Judah are now under his control. This map, um, is, uh, reflects that time period because this, this would be the map that the geographical map that we could have used the last couple of weeks when Ezra and Nehemiah. So uh, you can see uh, Babylon here, Jerusalem here, um, Persian Empire over here. Um, and so there, it was a, a pretty, pretty impressive empire. And then after that would be Alexander the Great. Um, and the Greeks uh, built the next great empire. And then following that, of course, would be Rome, uh, the, the Roman Empire. Uh, the Book of es Esther, so this would be the, the map that would kind of fit in that whole Esther, Nehemiah, um, and Ezra timeline. But the book of Esther, Esther rather, describes God's faithful deliverance of Israel during uh, the era of this Persian Empire. The author of Esther is unknown, um, but there is a hint that maybe uh, Mordecai may have been the historian. 
uh, there's a, this detail in the end of the book. And just a reminder, you'll have to be on your toes. I have a lot of scripture verses and I'll be rolling through them and I'm hoping you can multitask. Uh, think of this as your smartphone and you're trying to listen to me at the same time. Um, so Augustine and others uh, think that maybe Ezra uh, wrote the book. There is a sense that maybe Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther kind of go together. Um, but most scholars are unwilling to name an author and they think that it's possible that the book was compiled later by Hebrew uh, priests and scribes. There's a considerable debate even about the inclusion of Esther in the Old Testament canon. Uh, Luther um, allegedly disliked the book and wished that it did not exist. Um, part of the problem with Esther is it's quite unusual that the name of God does not appear anywhere in the book of Esther, while heathen kings are mentioned 187 times. Esther is never quoted in the New Testament, which is going to be a stark con contrast to uh, Isaiah, which we'll talk about next week. The Feast of Purim, of which this, the book of Esther introduces, has no connection with New Testament doctrine. So there are some arguments against having Esther included in the canon. However, there's still many arguments in favor of recognizing the canicity of Esther, that the idea that it should still be in the Bible. This book was written in Persia, and so any use of a Persian name for God would have dishonored uh, the Hebrew God. And I think that one of the strongest uh, evidence in favor uh, of its inclusion is the name of God, uh, Yahweh. So it would be, when you see um, in the Old Testament, in most of your English translations, you'll see Lord in small caps, L-O-R-D, but the O-R-D is in small caps, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? That's usually, uh, it's usually uh, a substitute for Yahweh, which would be um, what Jews would, what we might put down just Y-H-W-H. Or if you've ever been on any, uh, and I know um, Bob used to do this, um, a lot of uh, Jewish uh, scholars, when they write the name of God, they'll even put G dash and a G, leave out the vowel. Uh, just out of out of respect, um, but but what's interesting is the name of God that is Yahweh, uh, Y H W H, appears in acrostic form four times in the Hebrew text. Um, the initials of four consecutive letters in the Hebrew uh, in the Hebrew form the name Yahweh in four different verses. And that seems um, far too much of a of a coincidence. Uh, there's widespread support from Jewish scholars. Uh, that, that this book is legitimate in that regard. Um, the, the events uh, described in the book of Esther are still commemorated annually in the Purim festival. Um, it does, uh, does convey important ethical and spiritual lessons and explores themes like courage, loyalty, the consequences of arrogance, and the concept of divine providence, which we'll see. Emphasizes Esther emphasizes the unity of the Jewish people, both in terms of their common faith and their solidarity in times of crisis. Um, although the book of Esther does not explicitly mention God, some argue that the absence of, 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 uh, of direct divine intervention serves as a reminder that God's presence is sometimes hid, hidden, but clearly he guides these events. And there's a key verse in this verse that alludes to the providence of God, which I'll mention later. 
Uh, so let's get to the a little history background here. So again, I've been showing this slide every lesson. Uh, First Chronicles, you know, covered this part of history right here. Well, actually, it started with Adam all the way up, but mostly preoccupied with this section. Second Chronicles, mostly preoccupied with Solomon on, goes all the way to the, to the destruction of Jerusalem in um, 586, mentions the captivity, but really is a bridge between, Chronicles is a bridge between Ezra and Nehemiah. And now Esther is really in between here. Um, it's sort of an interlude, a, a narrative, if you will. Um, Israel enjoyed um, great uh, days under, under David and even Solomon. But as you know, the kingdom's divided. Um, so 70 years pass. That's the time of the captivity, which I talked about when Ezra and Nehemiah with Jeremiah prophesying this all along. And so I also mentioned that there were three um, rounds of exiles returning to Jerusalem. The first and greatest was under Zerubbabel. Ezra documents the history of all of this, but Ezra lived in the second time. Esther happened somewhere in between here not sure the exact years, but we're pretty close uh, based on the kings that are mentioned in the book. So we have a pretty good idea uh, there. Um, so timeline, if you're, again, I put the, um, the names that were consistent, but most, a lot of English translations say Ahasuerus. So if you're reading NAS or King James or some of those, you're going to see this. If you're reading something like NIV, you'll see this name, same guy. And this is, Esther takes place in this time period right here. Um, <laughs> Esther provides the only biblical uh, account of the events faced by the vast majority of Jews who had chosen to remain in Persian, Persia rather than to remain in exile. It is hard, and, and obviously there's Jews scattered all over the world today, and it is hard when, in that situation, it's hard to judge all the Jews for not returning to Jerusalem. It would have been uh, from Persia, a thousand miles, a hard journey, uh, and if you're established and you're just gonna say, you know what, I'm gonna live in California, or I'm gonna, you know, it's gonna be like, it's, it would be a big deal, and it's not, uh, so it's understandable, uh, this dispersion, and it was all part of God's plan. Um, so let's see, uh, we don't know the exact dates, but we're, we, at least we have an idea based on the names of the kings. Um, so let's see, this span of Esther is kind of a 10-year period approximately. There are three feasts dominate, uh, so we could divide the book of Esther into three parts, and I think my outline, or the outline you have, probably has an A, B, and C, right, for the content of Esther. And so a, a good way to divide it would be just a, a three major feasts dominate the narrative here. The first one is, is the, the backdrop. And so um, Ahasuerus, um, Erxes, whatever name you use, both same guy, he is, um, um, has this giant party 
I mean, like six months long. Invites governors, dignitaries. They are celebrating for a long time. And he reigned over 127 provinces uh, from India to Ethiopia. Uh, he was the son of Darius, who is mentioned in, in the book of Ezra and Daniel. And the grandson on his mother's side of King Cyrus is the guy who conquered Babylon to begin with and issued the first decree to allow Jews to return to Jerusalem. So in the third, reign, third year of this guy's reign, he gives this giant banquet. After six months of uninterrupted feasting, uh, he invites um, all the citizens of his capital to join him in his festivities lasting seven days. And on the very last day, he commands his queen, Queen Vashti, to attend the final night, um, probably to parade her. She was probably very beautiful, and he wanted to show her off. This guy, um, he, was, uh, he liked women. There's no question about it. Um, so anyway, as you, uh, well, if you know the story of Esther, she says, no, I'm not. I'm not coming out. She refuses to come out. And uh, you can imagine what happened. The king got really mad, real mad, actually. And so he gets together his advisors and says, let's talk about this. What am I supposed to do? And they think, say, well, you know, <laughs> I thought it's interesting when you read the story because it's like um, his advisors say, look, if you don't do something about this and none of our wives are going to respect their husbands. It would have boiled down to. He said, if, uh, if she's allowed to get away with this, then it's going to be bad news for all of us men. Um, so um, uh, what they decide to do is, um, uh, I hope I lost my place here. Um, he decides to say, okay, we'll search for a new queen. So they um, find all of the most beautiful women in the world. I fi find it interesting they didn't save all the women with the best character. They said, search for all the most beautiful women. And then I figured, then, then we'll look at character. Um, but he brought all the, all the prettiest women. And of course, among these is uh, a, a young Jewess uh, named Esther. Uh, that's her Persian name. Her Persian name is Esther, by the way. Uh, she was born a Jewish exile in the land of Persia. Um, she lost her parents uh, uh, when they were very young. And she had been adopted by her cousin Mordecai. And Mordecai is, uh, Mordecai and Esther are the two main uh, Jewish characters in this narrative. Um, he's an Israelite. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, which means he would be connected to Judah. Uh, only Ju only uh, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin would be connected to the southern kingdom. Um, so uh, after the customary preparation, Esther is brought before the king. And he's uh, enamored with her. He chooses her uh, to be her, his queen. Uh, four years after divorcing Queen Vashti, um, Hazarus marries Esther and she becomes queen. So this took, obviously took a, a little bit of time to happen. Um, and apparently scripture tells us that Esther did not disclose her race. I find that interesting because you'd think you know, they would vet these candidates to become queen. They'd know everything about them. But um, scripture does uh, make it clear that it's not mentioned uh, to the king that she's a, a Hebrew. Um, so after the marriage, Esther remains in uh, uh, constant communication uh, with um, Mordecai, her guardian. Um, and during one of his daily visits, 
uh, to the palace, Mordecai overhears a plot to assassinate the king. And so then he turns around and tells Esther, and Esther tells the authorities and says, hey, these dudes are trying to murder you, and, um, and the conspiracy is, conspo is exposed, and so the would-be assassins are hanged. Um, Mordecai's action to protect the king is written in the book of the Chronicles and the king, um, but it's, then it's seemingly forgotten. It's almost as if the king never heard about it, like they took care of this and then um, the king was never even told. It was like all behind, uh, behind the scenes kind of thing. Um, so sometime after the marriage of, of King Ahasuerus and Esther, um, this guy named Haman, and Haman is the bad guy in the story. Um, it seems like every good story has a good guy and a bad guy. Mordecai and Esther are the good guys. They're the protagonists, and, and Haman is the bad guy. I think um, when um, we, a long time ago, we had, um, so it was Bruce Rowe, right? Is it Bruce? Yeah. And some of this from Berean. What's that? Kunkel. Kunkel, that's right. Bruce Rowe's a different guy. He was missionary. Um, right, Bruce Kunkel. So another Bruce. But he wrote a, he was a musician, he wrote a play, a musical based on Esther. And every time Haman's word was mentioned, everyone was supposed to go boo and shake noisemakers. So um, Haman is the bad guy. He's the bad guy. All right, so, um, and when I talk about stuff like that, I lose my spot here. Um, I, I have, I could tell the story without notes, but I'm trying to, to make sure I don't forget anything and get through all my stuff. So, um, uh, so anyway, uh, sometime after the marriage, I mentioned that Haman uh, gets this, uh, the post of prime minister. And the king commands that Haman should be given the, uh, the highest respect. And that people, when they see him, are supposed to bow and give homage and say, Haman, you're the greatest. Um, but Mordecai didn't think that was a good thing. He th didn't think that he should have to bow to Haman. He thought, you know, it's one thing to uh, bow to the king as part of your civil responsibility, but he did not think that uh, he should bow uh, and pay homage to Haman. And um, that really made Haman upset. Um, when, when people ask Haman why he didn't uh, bow before Haman, he says, because he was a Jew. Um, not that, it's not that it was a, a violation of Jew, Jewish law to, to bow before a dignitary. I, I think that my guess is that Haman's refusal to, for example, just because we're Christians doesn't mean we can't pay proper respect to the president, right? Doesn't mean that we don't re pay respect to authority. Um, but it, but we, what scripture doesn't tell us and what we have to presume is that there was something else involved here. He knew something about Haman. Maybe he knew he was an evil man. He obviously turned out to be an evil man. Um, I'm not really sure. Um, it's possible that the Persians attacked, attached some kind of divine um, significance to dignitaries, and that's what ruffled his feathers. Um, we don't really know, but in some way, uh, to bow to Haman was a denial of his faith. Well, this made Haman uh, really mad, as I mentioned. Um, the discovery that Mordecai is a Jew um, really just increased his fury. 
um, because he was an Amalekite. And if you know your Old Testament history, well, the Jews were told to utterly destroy them, which they didn't. That was part of what they did wrong. And so there's this ongoing hostility between the Amalekites and the Jews. And in fact, it remains to this day. And you see what, you know, I mentioned what was happening in the Middle East last week. And on the way here, I was thinking about how to make sense of this. And, and without getting into this whole conflict, Israel-Hamas thing, I'll just say that we're, we're at a place in our nation, what scripture foretold is where we think things that are wrong, we think are right. That evil is considered good. And it extends to abortion and killing babies, uh, people supporting terrorists as something good. And that's bad. And that's where we are as, as, as not just a nation, but as a world, right? Our world is in a terrible place. Um, there'll be, scripture says, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. Uh, we, we know that to be true. So idea, ultimately, we want to pray for spiritual revival, both in Israel and in our own country, um, and even among the Muslims. Um, so um, Haman's not content to just go after Mordecai. Once he learns he's a Jew, he thinks, you know what? I don't like the Jews and I really hate Mordecai. So let's see what we can do just to go after the Jews. That's what he decides to do. And so he talks the king into getting this decree to exterminate Jews throughout the empire and gives the idea to the king that these Jews are just bad people and they're anti-government and they're anti-king and they're just gonna cause trouble. And so, Hearing the news, this terrible news, Mordecai sends word to Queen Esther, who has really had no idea about the decree. And she's probably in some, you know, palace room, and, and as you find out, only gets to see the king when the king wants to see her, and um, she has no idea what's going on. So Mordecai strongly urges her to use her influence to the king. And his words from... Um, uh, here in chapter four are probably um, uh, the key verse to the book, uh, especially right here. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jew from another place. That's, that's where God comes in. That's the providence of God. He is suggesting that if you don't act God will raise up someone else, but God, God will, I mean, would not, will not permit the Jews to be exterminated. And we'll talk about that uh, later when we get to application. So Esther has a plan and she's, uh, but let's first, um, so what she says is, let me think about this. Okay. She tells Mordecai, says, have the people join her in a 72 hour fast. So, and Esther says, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and try to go see the king. But you have to understand that if I go to see the king and say, I request to, to speak to you, and if he doesn't, if he's not in a good mood, I get killed. He basically, you go to the king, and if the king doesn't want to see you, then you're done. If he does, he'll hold out his golden scepter and say, yep, you're allowed, I'm, I'll see you. And so, um, um, let's see here. Okay, so... Um, the king does grant her an audience, and I'm hoping you're reading these verses. And before she's revealed her purpose, he promised to uh, grant whatever she respect, re requests, even up to half his kingdom, 
which I find is really odd, right? Um, I mean, but so Esther was special, no question about it. Um, but it also makes you wonder, like, you know, what kind of guy is this? Um, uh, anyway, not, not important part. Without revealing the ultimate intent, uh, she requests to prepare a banquet for King and Haman. So she says, let's have this banquet for Haman, which is ironic, right? Uh, again, providence of God, huge. Meanwhile, Haman uh, is so mad at Mordecai, he can't wait to like, fulfill this decree and execute uh, Mordecai. Um, so while Haman stews in his hatred for Mordecai, King Hazareris is having trouble getting to sleep. And so he has this insomnia, and he says, you know, he commands someone to read to him, right? The king couldn't sleep, so he said, bring out the book of the records, the chronicles, and so they're read for the king, because he was bored. And so here he's reminded of the plot of his life that Mordecai foiled. And the king discovers that nothing was done to honor Mordecai, the man that saved his life. And at that moment, the king hears footsteps in the outer court. Haman has come uh, to gain, try to get permission from the king to execute Mordecai. And so this, stor this story has this incredible irony. The king has in mind to honor Mordecai, but never mentions him by name. And so Haman comes in thinking that the king is going to honor him, he never mentions by name, and so you read this, and so what's to be done for the man whom the king desires uh, to honor? And Haman's thinking to himself, oh, he must be talking about me. And so he lays it on thick. The arrogant and conceited Haman thinks the king must be referring to him. So he piles on the honors and says, oh, well, do all this great stuff for him. Put him on this horse, you know, and these robes, and, and just do, do all this great stuff. And... Um, and so the king says, yep, sounds like a great plan. Do it, do it all. I want you to do it all. So then, of course, Haman is humiliated because he says, do this to Mordecai. And so he's really humiliated because he has to lead Mordecai through the city and say, pay homage to Mordecai, when in fact he hates Mordecai and really wanted to have him executed. Um, so Esther had this banquet uh, prepared. And the king and, and Haman attend the second ba banquet, and Esther pleads for her life to the king. And she talks to the king and says, if I found favor, and they had this thing where once a decree is made by the king, you can't rescind it. He can make a new decree, maybe to like help with the old one, but they can't just say, oh, sorry, that's no longer a decree. That was kind of the, the dilemma here. Um, it seems. So then she talks to the king. She reveals that Haman um, is the would-be perpetrator of the genocide of the Jews. And uh, the king's really mad that Mordecai kind of duped him into having this first decree. And he walks into the garden. And meanwhile, Haman goes to Esther to try to get find favor from her. Um, and so he's like falls at her feet, you know, and is touching her robe or whether. And the king walks in and sees it and says, how dare you, you know, touch my queen. And he's done. And so uh, the gallows that, that Mordecai had, or that Haman had built to hang 
Mordecai was now actually used to hang himself. Um, so uh, let's see. So uh, Xerxes or Hazarerus passes sentence of death upon him instantly. Um, so Esther pleads for a reversal of the decree issued against the Jews. Um, but as I mentioned, the law can't be rescinded. Um, but um, uh, they did issue a new decree. Um, in fact, Esther was awarded Haman's property, and she set Mordecai over the, the house of Haman, which is obviously more irony. And then he's authorized to, to, uh, to uh, initiate a new decree that where Jews could protect themselves. And Jews um, uh, unified, uh, and this ended up being, you know, a holiday. This was the institution, uh, or behind the institution of the Feast of Purim, which covers the last couple of chapters, the last uh, three chapters of the book. Uh, the, the, this is a perpetual memorial. It's a long verse, and so I'll give you a chance to read it if you can. Um, is it helpful for me to read these, or can you guys just read them yourself? You do? Oh, what's that? You like it if I could read it, you said? Well, it's a long one, so I'll read it real quick. Therefore, they, they called these days Purim after the name of Pur, Pur. And because of the instructions in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their uh, regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So it's called the Feast of Purim, um, after the name Pur, which means lot, because Haman had cast lots concerning uh, destruction of the Jews. And so um, uh, now we get to you know, more application here, Christ, how it's connected to, to Christ and his church. Um, the first, what's Satan's goal? If I could just ask, uh, we won't make this a rhetorical question. This is something you can answer. Just what is Satan's goal? Anybody? So what's that? Thwart the promises of God. He says steal, kill, and destroy. Thwart the promises of God. That's, yes, that's, that's his goal, right? That not it? He, he wants to get in the way. He wants to, God has decreed an end for Satan. Satan knows what's going to happen. But he's proud and thinks that maybe he can get in the way and change the what God has said is going to happen. He knows God's powerful, right? He's no dummy. Well, he is, sort of, right? But I mean, he's not, you know what I mean. So the point is, you know, he knows the sentence. He knows what's going to happen. So what, what are you going to do? I mean, even if you were given a, a death sentence, you're going to try, right? So in that regard, Satan's trying. He's going to fail, but he's going to try. That's his job, really. That's his mission, to, to thwart whatever God would, would do. And, and, and you have to think that Satan was behind Haman's desire to exterminate the Jews. This is, this is what Satan does. He is, um, he, why would he do this? Well, because if he can exterminate the Jews, what would happen? There'd be no Jesus. Jesus had to come from the tribe of Judah he, he's a Jew. And so if, if Haman was successful, that would mess up God's plan. 
um, the annihilation of, of the Israelites, especially the tribe of Judah, would remove all possibility of fulfilling God's promises or promise regarding Christ. The, the devil knew that, that the deliverer who was to rise from the line of David would destroy his power. That's what we learn in the New Testament. He's the same, he instigated Saul's attempt at David's life twice. It, it was David, Saul being tempted to kill David. Tempted by who? The evil one. He inspired Queen Athalia in her effort to annoy, annihilate the royal line, which, we, which I think um, uh, that would have been talked about in 2 Chronicles when Gary was here, when I wasn't here. Um, and so he stirred Haman to rush from, from, go off from, a, from an insult all the way to exterminating um, an entire race. That same malicious spirit prompted Herod years later, right? That same kind of spirit prompted Herod to kill the Christ by saying, well, we're just going to kill all the babies two years and younger. We'll, we'll make sure this guy doesn't, doesn't happen. And so on each uh, uh, occasion of satanic attack, the Lord delivered his people and safeguarded his gracious plan to send a son, his son into the world. Uh, scripture predicted the ongoing hostility in Genesis, right from the garden. That hostility is mentioned. And the apostles, after their warrant to not preach the gospel, acknowledge what David prophesied in Psalm 2. And in NASB, when you see these capital, these small caps like this, this is uh, usually a direct quotation from the Old Testament. So if you wondered why those are capitalized. Um, a lot of modern translations don't do that, but NAS does, and I've been using NASB um, for my notes. Um, so whereas Haman illustrates the forces of evil, Esther exemplifies the power of good. Like our Savior, Jesus Christ, Esther put herself in danger, in danger of death for her people. Um, she was delivered, though. Christ was not. Christ's death was necessary to save his people from her sins. Another point of comparison between Esther and the Lord Jesus is seen in her interceding on behalf of her people. Um, Jesus intercedes for us just as Esther interceded for her people. So um, let's talk um, a little bit about application. As I mentioned, the king um, got all these beautiful women to basically audition to be the next queen. But as I mentioned in the notes, uh, inner beauty is what's most important. <coughs> Esther stood out because of her inner beauty. Uh, yes, she was a beautiful form and face. That's what it says in scripture in chapter two. Uh, no doubt her appearance was a factor. But the historic record shows that her character was a strong factor in her attractiveness. And most, maybe young men don't know it, but I would say older men, and certainly women, understand that character, good character, makes a woman much more beautiful. Am I right? Absolutely, and I don't think there's any debate there. She was humble and submissive, and yet not lacking courage and determination. The, wor the Word of God warns against concern for outward beauty, which is very difficult in our culture today, since we have such a, uh, because of visual media, um, uh, appearances, um, 
just an idol, right? Beauty is an idol. Proverbs says that charm is deceitful and beauty is in vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. In fact, you know, if you're praying for someone who maybe used to walk with Christ, but doesn't now, I think one solid prayer to consider is pray that they would fear God. Because Scripture tells us the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and it does for good reason. And, I mean, that's what I pray for. People like that, that, have, that have walked away, I say, I pray that they would fear God. The fear of God could bring them back. Because in their own mind, they've already, they've already rationalized, right, reasons to walk away. They didn't do it randomly. But maybe, maybe if God would instill a fear in them, what if I'm wrong? What if God is real? What if God can do something to my soul? What if there's something greater than just this life? I pray uh, that God would instill a fear of God in them. So in a day when um, the body beautiful has become an idol, there is a need for Christians to take care not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the re renewing of our minds. And that's why we're doing Truth and Life. That's why in small group we're going through books of the Bible. Um, it's for mind renewal, really. It's, it's so we can understand. It's not that we, sometimes we should know the difference between right and wrong, but we need to be continually reminded. We need like a, it's, a, you know, you hear, I, I'm a big football fan. And so I can't tell you, I, week after week, you hear coaches talk about, oh, we got to get back to fundamentals. Like, execution, fundamentals. And I'm talking, you're talking about athletes who do this every day in practice over and over and over. They've been doing it since they were five, six, seven years old. And you're, you're saying, oh, we got to get back to fundamentals. What, they don't know how to tackle after 20 years? But it's true, though. We forget. We need coaching. We need, if we didn't, why would we listen to a sermon every Sunday? Why don't we just go on our merry way? We need coaching. We need pep talks. We need, we need teaching. We need to hear the story same time. We've gone through, in small group, we went through Romans. You think we should never go through Romans again? I'm ready. Let's do it again. Right? We need it. I'm hoping they ask me to do it. Put a little commercial in there. <laughs> Hope it's on the recording. Is it on the recording? Okay. Um, all right. So, yeah, we, we need it. Um, another point is submission to the state. Mordecai and Esther provide an example of how the godly function under an ungodly government. In the New Testament, considerable emphasis, again, Romans, right, um, is placed on the Christian to be a model citizen. And, and that's really important. As Christians, and I, I find it, um, I get really bothered by uh, people, because our country is so polarized politically now, more than ever before, Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservatives, we are so polarized. It is so, people are trying to make it black and white. And I get, I get really bo bothered by criticism of, of Christians, by liberals. Again, I don't want to make this political. I shouldn't have said liberals. Some people, 
Okay, sorry. When I think about my kids are, they're having babies, they're gonna take care of you guys when you get old, they're, they pay their taxes, they obey the laws, they respect authority, as do their parents, and the Christians I know do that. At Christ's word, we do, don't we preach that, right? We're good citizens. If, whether you're liberal or conservative, you should want people, you know, conservative Christians, you want them in your society. We, we're moral. We pay taxes, and we don't even complain about it. We're willing to do that. We support our own churches. We tithe, right? We, our culture needs us. Can you imagine? So many, so many, so many pe non-Christian people, they're having one kid, two kid. That's it. What are they going to do? If, what's our country going to do when there's nobody to take care of them? Now, I know that's not in my notes, but um, <laughs> anyway. It, it bugs me. It really bugs me. Um, so, yeah, it put me back a little bit, but we're, we're okay, I think. So, um, when there's a conflict between obeying God and the law, if it violates God's law, then we, hopefully, you know the right decision is to follow God. But if the law is reasonable, like a speed limit, like paying taxes, whatever, I'm going to obey that. You know? Yeah, this road should be 35, not 25, so I'm going to go my own speed. Well, you know, then I need to be subject to consequence. I mean, I not complain if I get a ticket. Um, I should obey the speed limit. Um, in the service of God, opportunities sometimes are there all the time, but sometimes are once in a lifetime. As Mordecai said, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You have to think that in this story, Esther was made queen in place of Vashti just so she could be the, the link to, to save the, the Jewish people. Opportunities for honoring Jesus Christ and testifying to his grace may suddenly come about, and we must be willing and prepared to act. As, as um, uh, Peter says, we, that we should be prepared, right? Be ready to give a word. If, if needed to. Um, Matthew Henry, when he talked about Esther, he said, though the name of God not be in it, his finger is. The book of Esther occupies its place in scripture because of its profound message. God is always at work protecting his people, even in the darkest times. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. God will accomplish his purposes. If you're given an opportunity, shouldn't it be you? Shouldn't it be me? If you don't act, God's going to find somebody. But why not you? God will accomplish his purpose. So we must ask ourselves that we want to be a part of God's glorious work among his people. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember, from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.